Hebrews Bible study number 18, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 28. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance." Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. The first ten verses of Hebrews 9 illustrated the insufficiency and perishing nature of the Old Covenant, using two objects that were very noticeably absent from Judea in the first century, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. Thus the Old Covenant simply cannot save. It is predicated on lesser promises, relies on objects which are fleeting to the point of total disappearance, and establishes such a hard separation between the holy and the mundane that redemption is, at best, a fleeting moment apprehended once a year. The author chides those attempting to live under the Old Covenant as ignorant, 
concerned only with minor things like ritual baths and diet. But now it is time to demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant under the high priesthood of Christ. If Christ is the superior high priest and his priesthood, the Melchizedek priesthood, are superior to the Aaronic priesthood, then it is natural to conclude that the covenant which Christ establishes is superior in every way as well. The latter portion of Hebrews 9, following the 10th verse, gives the positive reasoning for this supremacy. Verses 11 through 14 say, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The author began discussion of covenants with negative reasoning, explaining why the old covenant was inferior, perishing, and ineffective. This is not to say that it was evil, but rather that it did not accomplish what man would hope it to accomplish. But now, having shown the unhappy result of the old, it is time to make a positive case that the new covenant is good by itself. The first of these positive reasons, and foremost in the mind of the author, is that Christ is the superior priest going into a superior tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle is superior to the earthly one because it is not made by imperfect human hands. We might add that the tabernacle is still there in heaven, while the Mosaic tabernacle disappeared close to a thousand years before the author of Hebrews wrote his epistle. That which is made directly by our Lord will be superior and permanent to whatever man can institute at least in part because what God creates will not be destroyed. This heavenly tabernacle is the one off of which the earthly tabernacle was based. If the heavenly tabernacle remains in place, then the sacrifices which are presented there and the activities of a priesthood taking place there remain as well. Thus our Lord Christ entered once for all into the holy places, meaning that his work of redemption was entirely, permanently efficacious. All of the ritual purification of the Old Covenant, referred here by the blood of various animals, was something that had to happen frequently, never just once. Christ is also shown as being the more perfect sacrifice, as he is already the perfect high priest. One must note that the 13th verse speaks of ritual purification for the flesh, something the Levitical priests had to do. In verse 14, the purification through Christ's blood is not done for his own sake, but for ours. He needs no purification, for he is already pure. Now, when we hear about a heavenly place, we must take that statement at its plain meaning. Scripture says there is a throne room, a tabernacle, and other areas in heaven. The same goes for the objects in heaven, from the tabernacle furnishings to the olive branches to the very throne of God. 
There is no excuse for believers to claim that heaven is not a place simply because it is not physical. Those who would claim that separation from geospatial language is necessary are intending to turn everything symbolic in our hermeneutics, but this is not justified because the symbols themselves are actual things, the same way the symbolic objects of worship utilized in the Old Covenant were still things. While it may be admirable to try and chase away the threat of Platonism infecting our theology, the text stands as written. Platonism will be addressed as an addendum to this study. There are objects in the heavenly places which preside over the physical objects which take inspiration from them. The author of Hebrews assumes this fact rather than teaching more on it as it is wrapped up in a larger point of the superiority of Christ's ministry and covenant. Verses 15 through 22 state, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The therefore that starts this passage shows that on account of Christ's position as high priest, and on account of his passion, he is rightly said to mediate or establish the new covenant between God and man. However, this new covenant is not done without a purpose. It was enacted that whoever is called, which is everyone per Matthew 22:14 and John 12 verse 32, everyone has the opportunity to receive salvation. We might reword the latter part of the 15th verse so as to say, Jesus died that whoever will hear may be saved, because he redeems all from their transgressions. When the text mentions those who are called, we have two potential yet false alternatives to seeing the referent as all of humanity, the first being the elect in a Calvinist sense, the other being the Jewish people. To the first alternative, it may be tempting to see those who are called as differentiated from the general call given in John 12.32, since the Crux Theologorum dictates that not all who are called will be saved. Thus, Hebrews 9.15 saying, So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, could in theory lead to the notion that since only the elect receive that inheritance, this is the reference, the elect. However, the word translated as may receive is labosin, which is in the subjunctive, meaning that the outcome is not certain. 
And if it is not certain, then the phrase is more consistent with the general call than the elect only. Thus, the passage supports a universal atonement rather than a limited one. We also understand that this is not in reference to the Jewish people only, despite the reference to the sentence of death under the Old Covenant. Otherwise, we would have to throw out the entire book of Romans, especially the second chapter, which teaches that a stipulation of the Mosaic law was its binding nature upon all. While Israel was given the specifics of the commandments at Sinai, Gentiles too are judged and killed on account of their sins, which are enumerated under the Decalogue, whether they received the law orally, in written fashion, or not at all. Thus, it is most reasonable to assume that the author is stating something we all knew to begin with. Jesus Christ died for all sinners to redeem them, so that whosoever believes may receive the promise of eternal life. The passage agrees with John 3.16 in this manner. However, the author expands on this by demonstrating more of the requirement that Christ's blood be shed. For the word will, the same koine word for covenant, is employed, deatheke. Uh, it is translated as will for contextual reasons, as the author is referring now to something akin to a modern last will and testament, which is not enacted until the author of it dies. He brings this up in the passage to establish that nothing which has force of law or covenant is established without death, particularly in the currency of blood. More importantly, this means without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. In order for people to be saved, there had to be a new covenant. In order for there to be a new covenant, there had to be a death. And that death is Christ's. Verses 23 through 28 state, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Verses 23 through 26 make the sacrificial nature of the atonement clear. Christ died on our behalf, so that we may not have to die on our own behalf, which we cannot do. It simply leads to our damnation. While a few aspects of this are a mystery, such as the implication that the objects in the heavenly tabernacle had to be purified, perhaps it was more of a positive sanctification than a removal of something impure from them, we do receive some precious truths here that are quite plain. Verse 24 makes it clear that Jesus Christ did this for us, 
we are not shackled to those theories of atonement which separate Christ's suffering from his love for humanity. The ransom theory, or Christus Victor, tends to do that by denying that Christ suffered to achieve the forgiveness of our sins, preferring to see the atonement as a matter of cosmic battle over real estate. Verses 25 and 26 show that Christ's passion, his atoning death, it is one and done. You will never have to die for human sins ever again. This is fantastic news, as it means that no amount of sinning on our part will necessitate damnation for us or more pain for Christ. On the other hand, this also means that Christ is never re-offered. This rebuffs Eucharistic theories from Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism as well, the supposed unbloody sacrifice. The Mass is not the sacrifice of the Mass, wherein Christ is re-offered to our Heavenly Father, but rather it is the gift of the Mass, that Christ, having already offered himself to the Father, invites us to partake of his merit and blessing. And if the Atonement was one and done then there is no post-death second chance for us. This is actually a good thing, as it means that those who are in Christ do not suffer from an evil judgment due to some forgotten sin. There is no reincarnation. Either someone is covered by Christ's blood and slated for redemption, per verse 28, or they are not, having refused him. And if we have faith in Christ, then we have a good future. Now a side note or addendum on Platonism and Hebrews. A note must be made that the author is not supporting Platonism per se. Platonism posits that there are abstract ruling entities called ideas or forms from which all material objects take their properties and identity. The author of Hebrews, in discussing spiritual places and spiritual objects, is not necessarily saying that these are all platonic forms, having only pointed to the physical tabernacle objects being made after the pattern or design of heavenly objects. He is not making a statement on how metaphysics works in general. But the motif of permanence in this passage may suggest platonic influence, as the Greek philosophers were always battling with the topic of change. Change means impermanence, weakness, and uncertainty leading to a deconstruction of an object or person's identity. And the same was often said of motion. This led to various philosophical exercises which perplexed Greek philosophers for hundreds of years. One example would be the ship of Theseus. If every part of Theseus's boat, even the hull, is changed out for a different part, does it remain the same boat, or is it a different boat entirely? Reeling from these mental exercises, some thinkers like Parmenides became pantheists, while others floundered in materialism as Thales did. Plato's solution was theorizing that changing physical objects take their shape and properties from unchanging abstracts. If there is an unchanging thing behind a changing object, then there is a firm identity behind the material world. And this leads to an overarching principle that the changeless is better than the changing, the self-existent is better than the contingent, and the eternal is better than the temporary. 
since the author of Hebrews is making the case that the new covenant is a permanent, unchanging one, predicated on acting in a heavenly tabernacle. There is the temptation to see this as an endorsement of Platonic principles of thought. Is this the case, though? Did the author take inspiration from pagan philosophers? Well, it is unlikely that this is at root in Hebrews for a number of reasons. First of all, the case regarding a permanent new covenant is not in line with the Platonic forms, which in Plato's understanding are completely uncreated and eternal. The author of Hebrews rests his case on an unchanging God rather than an unchanging pile of abstract objects. And the objects of the heavenly tabernacle are not said to be eternal in and of themselves. In addition to this, the contrast is primarily between a dying covenant and a living one. The author of Hebrews notes that Christ died for our sins, something a Platonist would never accept based on his philosophy alone, especially since the atonement was enacted to change the spiritual state of affairs. Platonists and Greek philosophers in general hate change. The author of Hebrews is saying change happened, but a permanent change that is for the best. But that said, it could be the case that having Greek influence on the Hebrew congregation, the author is appealing to an unchanging covenant, demonstrating that knowing full well that some sort of Greco-Roman platonic influence might need to be addressed. Here is this one aspect that Plato got right, that change is bad if we are talking soteriology. But nonetheless, overall, it seems tangential to the author of Hebrews' point as a whole. That said, we will get into chapter 10 and potentially get into the other warning passage in Hebrews. <laughs> Hopefully we can make it through unscathed. Amen and amen.